This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator and debate referee. And today we have four luminaries on the topic of space. Let's just go ahead and call them stars, who will be debating for and against this motion. A U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. And first off, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, IBM, for helping to make this all possible. All right. Now, the next order of business is the voting. Yes, voting. Good timing on this one. Um, But in this debate, you get to decide who wins the debate, and you do that by voting. We have you vote two times. Once before you have heard all the arguments, which means you'll be doing it in just a few seconds, And once again, after you have heard all of the arguments, and I want to explain now that the way we do this, it's the team that sways the most votes from one side to the other, from the first vote to the last vote that is declared our winner. All right, it is time to meet our debaters. First, the team arguing in favor of the motion, a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. First, he is a physicist. He was the longest serving astronomy chair at Harvard. Avi Loeb is the author of the upcoming book, Extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. Avi, I want to say to you, welcome to Intelligence Square. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. And Avi's partner is a former NASA scientist turned entrepreneur, Bidushi Bhattacharya, oversees global businesses in space education and startup incubation. Thank you so much for joining us, Bidushi. Thanks for having me. And now we go to their opponents who will be arguing against the motion. Again, the motion is a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. A theoretical physicist and a co-founder of string field theory, Michio Kaku is a best-selling author of books such as Hyperspace, Visions, Beyond Einstein. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Michio. It's great to have you. Great to be on. And Michio's partner, Raji Rajagopalan, is a distinguished fellow and head of the Nuclear and Space Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation, one of India's leading think tanks, and also the author of The Dragon's Fire, Chinese Military Strategy and Its Implications for Asia. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, John. All right, now let's move on to round one. And round one is comprised of opening statements from each debater in turn. Those opening statements are uninterrupted. And they will be four minutes each. Again, the resolution, a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. First up to speak in support of the motion, Bidushi Bhattacharya, the screen is all yours. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Let me ask you a question. Are you watching this on your cell phone? Have you used your phone today? If so, you're already reliant on space technology Many of the apps on your phone depend on satellite signals up to hundreds of times a day to provide you with location-based apps and services that you rely on on a daily basis. The development of outer space is inevitable, not just in the United States and China, but in nations that have a per capita GDP that's just 3% that of the U.S., they are becoming space leaders. This is not just governments around the world, it's also private companies and startups. The price tag for space tech has dropped by a factor of up to 10,000. Access to outer space is indeed democratized. 
space-based goods and services are exponentially growing and it's a global sector. Let's figure out how to cooperatively manage its development. The last space race brought us the foil blankets that help people keep warm, whether they are marathon runners in New York or refugees at a UN camp in Bangladesh. These indispensable goods come from technology that was specifically designed to enable spacecraft to observe large-scale weather patterns from above, to fly to the moon, or even to fly to uh, Mars. These innovations have moved from the Earth back down to Earth through the ingenuity of countless technologists, medical workers, social science experts, and others around the world. Our colleagues in the opposition may suggest that a space race should be avoided or at least curtailed based on historical precedent. They may suggest that a space race would trigger competition for military might and domination in outer space. However, a cooperative alliance that pools expertise from around the world would allow the United States to access uh, goods and services that we cannot access if we just work on this alone. This debate topic has to be considered in the context of our unique position in human history, a context of which you're all very much aware. We citizens of planet Earth are living in a different era today where our species as a whole is facing catastrophic challenges due to COVID-19 and climate change. These circumstances offer a chance to rethink our approach to building any up-and-coming sector, including space. We have the option to improve our odds of success by tapping talent, and resources on a global basis going beyond limits that have been posed to date, limits based on race, religion, gender, and nationality. A cooperative path to space will lead to incredible, unimaginable innovations while at the same time protect vulnerable space assets, not just for leading nations, including the United States and China, but also for many nascent, nascent spacefaring countries that have joined the scene because of dropping price tags. Let's be clear about this. Space is democratized and exponential change is inevitable. Would a U.S.-China space race be good for humanity? Or would it necessarily lead to the rapid misallocation of resources for possible militarization of space? I don't think the latter will happen. My debate partner Avi Loeb and I believe we must leverage humanity's mutual needs and talents and coordinate development together. There is space in this sector for everybody. Dear viewers, please vote in favor of the premise a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. Thank you very much, Madhushi Bhattacharya. Our next speaker will be arguing against the resolution. I want to welcome into the conversation with her opening statement for four minutes, Raji Rajagopalan. The screen is yours. Thank you, John. I would make four points as to why a U.S.-China space race is not good for humanity. I believe any space race will very quickly move into military competition. And U.S.-China space competition will now will be no different. And I think this is already evident. After two decades, the two countries are back to testing ASAT weapons, anti-satellite weapon systems, weapons that are capable of targeting each other's satellites. There is also interference through cyber means to the space operations. These are essentially trends that are dangerous and destabilizing. I believe a U.S.-China space race will only accelerate these trends very quickly. Second point, I think the U.S.-China space race cannot be limited to just the two players. This will spread. This will have cascading effects. For instance, China's development of counter space capabilities not only threatens the U.S., but also its neighbors, Japan and India, for instance. India's anti-satellite test last year in March 
is a demonstration of this particular competition picking up in the neighborhood. This was done because China has already done so. With India having demonstrated its anti-satellite capability, there is every likelihood that Pakistan will follow suit. But there are also other advanced technological powers such as France, Britain, and even Australia who might go down this path. There is essentially no defense to these attacks, to protecting our satellites. Essentially, offense is the only way. The threat of retaliation, that's the only possible solution, essentially like nuclear deterrence. But the only difference is that we will be extending this to outer space. This brings me to my third point, which is we are already facing serious problems in space. And the usable areas in outer space is fairly limited. And we need, therefore, restraint in our activities, the kind of activities that we engage in. This means we also need to bring about multilateral governance, global rules, global rules of the road, global agreements. But this would require, first and foremost, multilateral negotiations. And the key negotiating body, the Conference on Disarmament based in Geneva, has been stalemated for more than two decades. In fact, the last negotiations happened in 1996. So, and I believe a U.S.-China space race will affect every aspect of their relationship, including the possibility of fresh negotiations, making the difficulty of global governance extremely challenging. And I think even though we do have a few treaties in place, we need updating some of the existing measures, such as the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It came about at a very different time, and we need to change the rules of the road to tackle the contemporary threats, whether it is cyber, uh, cyber weapons or anti-satellite weapon systems and so on and so forth. There are loopholes that need to be addressed in the Outer Space Treaty, for instance. The Outer Space Treaty prevents the placement of weapons of mass destruction in space, but it does not talk about the placement of conventional weapons or the ASATs and cyber weapons. So we need to change the rules of the road for global governance Otherwise, we will be essentially making space uh, sustainability a serious threat in, this, in the coming years. Therefore, I would argue that the U.S.-China race, space race is not going to be helpful at all. And I would urge the audience to vote against the motion and be, avoid a catastrophic incidence in space. Thank you. Thank you, Rajaraja Koplan. Uh, next up on screen with an opening statement in support of the resolution that a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity, here is Avi Loeb. Avi, the floor, the screen is yours. Thank you. I would like to advocate that uh, in general competition is good both for science, technology, and humanity more generally. Uh, in fact, the Nobel Prize in Physics uh, this year that was announced a week ago uh, was given to two teams that competed with each other, and this competition elevated the uh, level of their research uh, to greater heights. Now, the competition between nations started in the oceans. Uh, imagine forbidding ships to leave Europe in fear of the use of ships for military purposes. Where would we be today? The Americas would not have been discovered unless there has been a competition between the Portuguese, uh, which discovered the Pacific Islands in 1512, uh, and the Spanish, who discovered the Americas. Uh, and then the Dutch uh, Republic, England, France, and Russia in the 17th and 18th uh, centuries. 
Uh, a metaphor for any new world uh, is provided by this, this example. There are resources in space and commercial opportunities for new technologies that would not be harnessed otherwise. Uh, space is inspirational and uplifting uh, for many practical problems that we have also on Earth. And the competition, if you look at the past, led to innovation. Uh, the Soviet Union Sputnik uh, in 1957 led to the declaration of JFK uh, of the Apollo program, an unprecedented innovation in technology and science. We're in the midst of opening statements from our four debaters arguing for and against the resolution, the U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. Up next, we'll hear more from Avi Loeb arguing for the resolution. More debate coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We're in the midst of an opening statement from Avi Loeb arguing that the U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. Uh, the fraction of GDP that was allocated to NASA was a few times larger during those years than it is today. It's basically uh, impossible to avoid the development of space technology. The, the cat is out of the bag already. Uh, communication and GPS uh, systems for navigation are being used, and the satellites are used everywhere. And so uh, they are important both for the economy and for fundamental science. Uh, the other point to keep in mind is that uh, it's impossible to enforce space laws, especially in the private sector, uh, since uh, the private sector is outside the boundary of countries. Uh, and um, we are already using space technologies for the benefit of science. There are several telescope, space telescopes uh, in the planning. The South Pole is an example of peaceful international cooperation for the sake of promoting science. And it could be a model for the Moon and Mars. Uh, but we have no choice. We have to move away from Earth because conditions might, be, might change in the future. And uh, we better start now. Space is the ultimate frontier. And uh, it's also important for national security. We cannot assume cooperation by other nations. And we must protect our national interests. Uh, there is a strategic advantage uh, operating from space uh, for surveillance satellites, uh, warning systems for ballistic missiles, uh, monitoring and cleaning up space debris, and uh, mo monitoring existential risks, uh, such as uh, climate change, uh, pollution, or weather patterns. Anyone arguing against competition signals an inferiority complex. And I do believe that the U.S. and its partners will and should win the competition uh, as uh, we did uh, with the Soviet Union. Obviously, there are concerns, but um, we should move forward with our aspirations. Thank you very much, Avi Loeb. And our final speaker, again on the resolution, a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity, will be speaking against the resolution. Here is Michio Kaku. Michio, the screen is yours. I'm a professor of theoretical physics. I work on Einstein's unified field theory trying to use the peaceful application of physics. But I also realize that physics can be used for war. When I was at Harvard as an undergraduate, my mentor, my advisor was Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb. In fact, he even offered me a job to design the next generation of hydrogen warheads. But I went into the military. I volunteered because it was the Vietnam War. 
And I was in the United States Infantry. And I realized a lesson from warfare, and that is, generals always fight the last war. They live the glory days of victories of wars past. They are totally unprepared to fight the wars of the future, which are going to be short, nasty, brutal, unlike anything we have ever seen before. We're talking about the fact that our missiles travel at 18,000 miles per hour. Within a matter of minutes, you can knock off the enemy's satellites, communication systems, power systems, and create havoc and paralyze and blind the enemy, which gives incentive for a first strike. Because if you strike first, you can blind the enemy. If you strike second, you may not survive to strike second. Second of all, It'll escalate, of course, to a potential nuclear confrontation, but there's a wild card. The wild card is the electromagnetic pulse. Back in the 1960s, the United States sent a Thor missile over the Pacific, detonated a hydrogen bomb in outer space, and was shocked at the electromagnetic pulse, which paralyzed communications between San Francisco and Tokyo, set off burglar alarms all over Hawaii. A small country, like North Korea being outgunned can shoot a warhead over Kansas and potentially knock out a good fraction of our satellites and power systems in the United States. That's the great equalizer. And who's the most vulnerable if it goes to a first strike? We are. Over 50% of the satellites in orbit are tied to the U.S. military or the U.S. economy. So in other words, we are the ones who will suffer the most if it goes to a first strike, if it escalates to a nuclear confrontation, all of which could take place within a matter of minutes. So what do we do about this? As was mentioned, there is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It banned nuclear weapons in space and said that nations cannot claim celestial bodies like the moon, for example, and it has held the peace for 50 years. I'm all for peaceful competition, but I'm also a realist. I realized that it wouldn't take much, wouldn't take much for the arms race to spiral out of control, putting pressure on small nations to initiate a first strike, to paralyze the United States, because we are the ones most dependent upon telecommunications, on power supplies, all of which in principle could be knocked out with an electromagnetic pulse. And remember, a new arms race is brewing now. Hypersonic weapons, that's the name of the next round of competition. Destabilizing weapons that are maneuverable, that travel up to 20 times the speed of sound, let's not be naive. The Russians are working on it, the Chinese are working on it, we are working on hypersonic drone vehicles, and a whole new arms race could start. So the wind of opportunity is now. Now is the time for a treaty before hypersonic weapons destroy our chance for a peace in outer space. So I want to go back to you, Mishu. You're saying that if things really, really get out of control, the U.S. would lose in a confrontation. We would be the, we would be the most vulnerable. And if it comes to a military conflict out of space, that the U.S. would be the loser. Why is that not 
exactly an argument that the other side is making that, well, therefore we have to be defending against that. We have to respond to that. If they escalate, we should escalate. In fact, we should try to get ahead of them so that we can have a deterrent effect against them. So I want to have you take a, about a minute on that thought, and then I would like to have your opponents respond to some of what you're saying. Well, first of all, realize that our satellites have no reinforcement, no backup systems. In other words, they are sitting ducks. And if we start to get into this escalation ladder, that is, you have ASAT weapons, I want killer satellite weapons, you have the electromagnetic pulse, I want the electromagnetic pulse, where is it going to end? It ends in first strike. And that's the danger that is destabilizing. Conventional wars take place over weeks, months, years. A conflict in outer space takes place over minutes, where the pressure is on to strike first, to escalate perhaps the nuclear weapons. And now, of course, I'm all for the peaceful exploration of outer space, but let's not be naive. The Russians, the Chinese, the United States, we're all working on hypersonic weapons. And hypersonic weapons are maneuverable, traveling at 20 times the speed of sound, and can initiate a first strike much quicker than any of the previous weapons that we have. So we're now entering a dangerous position, a dangerous situation where a slight miscalculation, uh, a blip on a radar screen, could perhaps set off an escalation ladder leading up to nuclear warfare and the electromagnetic pulse. Okay, Bidushi, I'd like to get your response to that. Well, let me just start with what he was talking about with the electromagnetic pulse, EMP. I worked on a project to harden telephone switches across the U.S. against electromagnetic pulses. This was back in the 1980s, and so in the past, we've made a lot of progress in this sector, and we did learn from our lessons. So the other thing is, um, I've been talking about global cooperation, and that's key. So let's just say we have an EMP that comes and affects the Earth. If the U.S. is part of a partnership that leverages access to other countries' satellites, we could actually just go and use their satellites for a while while we get ourselves back on our feet. So um, the te technology that we're seeing, it's inevitable. We can't stop it. The best we can do is shore up, cooperate, and figure out scenarios where we can rely on each other in case somebody's assets are under attack. Uh, Raji, what's your, what's your take on the point that um, Badushi just made? No, to me, I think the problem is not just the U.S. being hit. The U.S. being hit is, of course, very serious because the U.S. has the largest number of satellites, but it also provides to the common global goods. So in a sense, it is going to affect everybody else. Second, outer space is the one of the most serious global commons. So any one space, any one country's space asset being attacked and targeted, I think it is going to have an effect across the board in a sense. And more, more, more than this, I think this technological development that Vidushi and others talked about, the opponents talked about, I think it has limitations. And I think more importantly, I think we have seen technological developments over the last two decades come up without this competition. So I would not, this argument that tech competition or the race between U.S. and China is what is pushing the technological development is not necessarily true. And to me, I think the more worrying aspect is the dangers of the competition and the militarization. Militarization in some senses has already happened with most militaries around the world using space war 
a number of passive military applications, including intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. But the trend towards weaponization is dangerous and destabilizing. And that's what we need to curtail. That's what we need to limit. And this competition is not going to be just limited to the two players. You already see this, especially play out in the Indo-Pacific region. And that, to me, is most worrying. Okay, Avi Loeb, so, so your side has made two arguments. One is that um, competition has kind of in the uh, Cold War era model when the Russians and the, the Soviets and the Americans were racing to get to the moon, that that led to lots of technological innovation, that it unified the nation, that that's a positive thing, and especially that that innovation was, in terms of our re resolution here, uh, good for humanity. But you're also making the argument that in a U.S.-China face-off in space, you believe the U.S. ultimately would be dominant. What's your case that a, a dominant American position in space would be better for humanity than a Chinese position dominant in space? Because uh, of the American spirit. I believe that America is all for science uh, and the better of uh, humankind rather than uh, the imperialist approach of, of dominating in, 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 in uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of economic benefits or in terms of political benefits, I, I do believe that uh, we have aspirations that are uh, scientific in, 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 in their roots. And uh, just like we went to the moon, uh, it was not a particularly practical uh, benefit. I mean, it, there was a sense of national pride that uh, came with it. But uh, as a result of that, uh, NASA's budget increased significantly, and we developed technologies that are useful for science. And right, but, but cannot a Chinese commitment to space and research have the same outcome, is what I'm really asking. It could, but we have no control over that. I have a different point of view, the point of view of President Ronald Reagan. When Ronald Reagan, uh, in 1984, was at the, just about to get reelected, he went to the microphone and said, I hereby outlaw Russia. The bombing starts in five minutes. That freaked out the Russians, of course. The bombing starts in five minutes. But President Reagan went on to sign one of the grandest, one of the most all-encompassing treaties with Russia because he realized it was pointless, it was a waste of money, and we could seal in nuclear superiority in certain ways. We didn't have to give up our nuclear superiority across the board. No, you could simply put the status quo in writing. So I'm not saying that we should give up the, the mastery of outer space to all our enemies. No, we should freeze it, freeze the arms race. If it means that the United States is ahead in certain areas, so be it but it means that we're not gonna reach for first strike weapons because that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, first strike. The nation that strikes first has an overwhelming advantage. It is the unbridled competition which is gonna lead us to a first strike capability in outer space, but there's no reason why we can't have a treaty which seals in certain aspects of American superiority. The thing to do it is now because right now, Russia, China, and the United States are about to embark upon a hypersonic arms race. And so I think you can have, quote, superiority as well as peace in outer space. Let me, let me jump in on that point, because I want to bring Bidushi into the conversation. You haven't had much of a chance. In the spirit of his position on the argument, the U.S. would refrain from adapting a first strike policy, sort of unilaterally not do that, unilaterally in a sense, preemptively disarm, let's say. What do you think about that sort of ideal that you, your opponent is, is spelling out 
as I think he believes a realistic option. I'm not sure how well treaties would work. It's it's difficult to enforce them, and we are in a completely different playing field now. It's no longer two superpowers that have access to this technology, right? It's not just the U.S. and Russia. It's not just the U.S. and China. The fact that we have so much access to outer space now means that basically any country that can afford half a million U.S. dollars can send something to space. So we really have to rethink how to do this. We're in a new era, and I I might suggest instead of focusing on treaties that you try to get people to sign as soon as they become spacefaring nations, we should really work in a cooperative fashion to look at what's in the mutual interest of everybody. If we feel like we are united, it's much less likely to um, cause us to do a first strike. All right, thank you. I want to move off now the militarization question, but I want to give Raji a chance to jump in on this. Raji, Badushi in her opening talked about the benefits that come from a nation that is trying, as Kennedy said, you know, to energize the best of its energies and skills, and that the the nine years that the United States devoted to getting to the moon and winning in a competition had enormous benefits in terms of uh, R&D, scientific impact, impact uh, unifying spirit, that the, overall that race was arguably good for humanity, and that that can reproduce here, that a competitive spirit in and of itself can be a very, very good thing and should not be stifled, even within the context of US-China. So what is your response to that point about that competition being a, a beneficial thing? And then I wanna come back to Badushi for response. Absolutely. No, I think it's important that competition is good. I generally agree with that. But I think the way it is playing out between US and China, it comes in that backdrop. So in a sense, Science and technology and politics cannot be separated out. This the technological competition is not going to really bring out the positivity that my opponents have talked about. Bringing about a cooperative framework uh, to collaborate in the peaceful pursuit of space, I don't see that happening. In fact, the contrary is already kind of playing out. Right. So um, she mentioned cooperative framework. And what I want to point out again is that we are at a unique point in human history. We have everybody across the globe facing the same issues with COVID, the same issues with climate change. So we can't look back to history and think about how we were all divided and we will have a bunch of different countries trying to compete with each other. I'm saying this is a unique opportunity, perhaps one that will never come again, where we can come together, establish common goals and build technology cooperatively so that if we do have some of our assets in space compromised, we can turn to another nation and say, can we use your technology? Can we share your expertise until we get ourselves back on our feet? I want to move now on to bringing in a a larger group to the conversation, namely our audience, including our global audience. Over the last few weeks, more than a thousand people around the world submitted arguments on this debate. They went online and they wrote in something like, we need the space race to kickstart innovation and for our sense of national unity. And I I think we've heard that argument actually come up here today. So um, that's kind of the idea, hearing those sorts of arguments. And now what we're doing is we're gonna use artificial intelligence to help us sort out and understand what has mattered most to that global audience, what arguments and ideas they thought were most important. And we've turned to IBM Watson, which uses AI to actually scale public opinion. It uses its ability to process natural language, to map out themes and key points across these thousand plus submissions. So let's see how that works. 
First, people around the world submit their arguments online. Then, the AI assesses the quality of the arguments, filtering out any irrelevant submissions, and sorting the remaining arguments into for and against. Next, the technology identifies the recurring key points, ranking them based on their quality and their frequency. Finally, the AI creates a coherent narrative of the strongest and most prevalent points for both sides of the debate. Thanks to IBM Watson for compiling those questions from our global audience around the resolution that a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. After the break, our debaters respond. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More debate in just a moment. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And now we get to hear a selection of the key points and arguments that our global audience, thousands of people around the world, considered most important on this topic. So let's get to that. Hello. The following analysis used AI models to identify the critical key points made by each side on the motion, a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. 48% support a U.S.-China space race, with 41% of those arguing, that a rivalry between the East and the West boosts innovation and scientific advancement. Another key point for the motion was that a U.S.-China space race would demonstrate how competition can expand knowledge and drive international cooperation. One argument was that sustaining life outside of Earth offers a new chance to change social constructs and forms of cooperation. People also think a space race helps drive technology, jobs and hope. The remaining 52% were against a motion, with 14% of submissions arguing that a U.S.-China space race will have serious negative consequences. One argument said increasing competition and division between rivals will not benefit humanity as a whole, but rather serve to divide us. Another key point against the motion was that it will be a waste of precious resources. And a global space spending spree between the US and China would waste money that could be used more constructively. People also said that space colonization may worsen environmental degradation. The constant launching of missiles produces a large amount of harmful exhaust gases that contribute even more to climate change. While it would surely spur innovation, it would also distract us from more important traces, such as the one to save our climate. Please visit the website to see more results. So it's interesting that uh, the global audience brought up some arguments that n none of the four of you have brought up, which is the basic question of application of resources and the fact that money and, and time and energy are limited. Avi, you're a space guy. I'm sure you've heard the argument every time somebody talks about putting a mission up to Mars. But what about the argument that a space competition in and of itself would exaggerate the spending for its own sake, particularly if it moved towards militarization, and that, and that by itself competition would skew the allocation of resources in a way that would not be good for humanity? Well, what we miss uh, in this context is the fact that space is three-dimensional. We live on a two-dimensional surface, the surface of the Earth. And we tend to think that all applications will be related to this surface, that there would be missiles coming from one nation going to another. But in fact, 
you know, what we are discussing these days is going to the moon to establish a sustainable base uh, and then eventually go to uh, Mars and perhaps beyond. Uh, of course, uh, there is the immediate environment and the risks for wars and so forth, but the way I see space is the third dimension. We have to discuss that and the technology to reach to the third dimension and the resources that we may find there. We can harvest energy that we cannot harvest on the ground on Earth. We can improve communication. We can explore scientific questions that otherwise we cannot answer. And more importantly, the conditions on Earth in the long run will change. The sun will burn out uh, and in fact, within uh, less than a billion years, all the oceans on Earth will be boiled off. So we will have to go to space. It's inevitable. And we better start now. Uh, it's possible that there are other civilizations that already did that. Uh, and we are, if we are stuck on this two-dimensional surface and worry about fighting with each other, uh, that's a very narrow-minded view of this three-dimensional volume that we can explore. Okay, let me take that to Raji. So I, I heard Avi saying that your note of caution on competition would have uh, a rollover effect of suppressing the degree to which people want to work in space and explore in space and extend in space. What about that? No, I do not believe that is the case. The number of space actors are also kind of diversifying and technological spin-off benefits from these kind of companies uh, doing different things. I think that's enormous. But at the same time, I do not believe the new technologies that are coming up essentially from China or Russia uh, or even the U.S. in that sense is necessarily towards peaceful applications of space. Just a couple of months ago, you had the Russians coming out with a new projectile in, in space. So that was, in a sense, a first case of space weapon uh, being tested there. So in a sense, I think the destructive aspects of new technologies are far more dominant today to me, but especially among the three key players, Russia, US, and China. We have a question from uh, Elwan Lobopiris that's been submitted uh, during the course of the debate who asks, why do proponents of cooperation think that ch Chinese will abide with any rules set down for genuine cooperation? Michel, I think that question goes you know, directly at your thesis. So the question is, why would anybody expect the Chinese to play nice? Well, first of all, nations work in their own national interests. The Chinese will realize that they're outgunned and that it is in their national interest to sign a treaty. And we have to have ways to enforce that treaty and penalties if they violate the treaty. That's how we did it during the Cold War when there was a lot more at stake than what is at stake now. And their interest should be peace, the peaceful exploration of outer space, rather than an arms race that no one's gonna win and we are the losers. Badushi Avi, in his opening, has said that the U.S. would, would win in a confrontation. And uh, Michio is saying, well, the Chinese know that. I think that's that. a fantasy. And that that's a fantasy to believe that you can win in a war that goes nuclear very, very soon. A, a nation like uh, India, China, they're going to go nuclear because they know they're outgunned. And their ace in the hole is the EMP and nuclear weapons. If it goes to a war, it's going to go nuclear very fast. 
I think we're missing the point here and looking at warfare in a very traditional way. You have to talk about soft power. And Michio, you mentioned having treaties that are in the interests of everybody. So think about space tech and China. Let me try tie NASA together with China for you. China has really bad issues with pollution right now. Yesterday, NASA landed on an asteroid and scooped up material to bring back here to Earth. So if we can find that sweet spot where everybody benefits, I think those benefits will override the choking pollution or whatever other climate-related issues that you're talking about right now. All right, that concludes round two of our debate. We are about to hear brief uh, closing statements from all four of our debaters, one after the other. There will be two minutes each. This is their last chance to try to change your minds. And once again, you're gonna be asked to vote a second time and that vote will decide our winner. First, making her final argument for the motion, a US-China space race is good for humanity. Here is Badushi Bhattacharya. All right, I hope by now you're convinced that the space sector promotes innovation, that access to it has become increasingly democratized globally, and that the sector will move inevitably at an accelerated pace in the coming years. This means you have unimaginable spin-off technologies that are soon to be coming your way. 20 years ago, would you have imagined replacing those folded maps in your car with a map application that fits in the palm of your hands? The best way to handle this inevitable space race is to engineer it. Engineer it not just for our advantage, but for the benefit of all of humanity. Now, our opponents have expressed concerns that an accelerated and costly militarization of outer space may occur. Let's think about their concerns, which are valid. What would happen if, for instance, a government entity or even a private party decided to wipe out the United States telecommunications network using an electromagnetic pulse? The impact of such a scenario could be mitigated if we start now. With the down-to-earth approach to space development, we would be able to face this potential catastrophe with inclusive partnerships already in place, where we would immediately be able to access global networks of telecom satellites from other countries until we got our backup systems back up in place. Space is indeed becoming democratized. Today, startup companies can build and launch a base model of a handheld satellite known as a CubeSat. This is something that my startup company builds and works with on a regular basis. You can build and launch one of these for the cost of a Ferrari, for instance. The U.S. can and should take advantage of wide-scale access to space tech and build cooperation on a planet-wide basis. Please think big, aim for the stars, and vote in favor of the premise a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. Thank you, Badushi. Our next speaker will be speaking against the resolution. That is Raji Rajagopal on the screen is yours. Thank you, John. Let me come uh, try and conclude my points with uh, two arguments. I think we are already having difficulties in carrying peaceful activities in outer space. And I believe the U.S.-China space race will make it much worse. I was part of the, uh, the U.N. group of government experts that met in 2018-19 as a technical advisor. And I witnessed firsthand the kind of difficulties, the high level of disagreements between U.S.-China on a number of these issues. And I believe this will get even more difficult, more challenging in the coming years with the U.S.-China space race gaining more traction. It is harder to reach agreements because the U.S.-China competition has made the stand of each of these countries extremely harder. This brings me to the second point I want to talk conclude about with. This is about the consequences, John. The consequences of intentional or accidental conflict in space is very, very severe. A day without space is actually unimaginable. The whole world will be affected by it. 
no hope for a vaccine, for instance. Like, for instance, the pandemic gives us a hope that we can actually develop a vaccine, but we don't have such vaccine for a disruption in space. A pandemic disruption cause looks in uh, looks actually in pale in uh, pale in, in comparison to a sort of a satellite disruption space. This will be an unmitigated disaster. So we should be afraid. We should be very afraid of a U.S.-China space competition and its consequences for all of us. I hope the audience will are convinced about the arguments that we have made and will vote against the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Raji. Our next debater is speaking for the motion. That is Avi Loeb. Avi, the screen is yours. Thank you, John. Um, the space race is in inevitable. The cat is already out of the bag. And the, our best bet is that the global economy would make cooperation the general theme of, of the space uh, exploration. And, and we should not forget that space is all about going in the third dimension. We keep thinking about militarization of space, but that's only restricted to very low latitudes above the Earth. Uh, it, ultimately, space is all about going far from the Earth and exploring what is out there and all the resources that we cannot find on Earth. Uh, going to the Moon, then to Mars and beyond, uh, and going to asteroids. Uh, all of this offers uh, financial and commercial benefits, and uh, it's relatively low cost compared to nuclear weapons, for example. So there is no way uh, to uh, prevent that, especially in the private sector. I mean, nations can sign whatever they want, but if there is a commercial benefit, it's hard for me to see how a space law would be enforced. Will there be a space police chasing satellites? Um, and so I think space offers great benefits, not only in terms of the global economy, but also in terms of science. And we already see that in the context of astronomy. There are many satellites uh, that... Uh, helped us discover new, new secrets about the universe. Nobel Prizes in recent years were uh, given to such uh, uh, discoveries. Uh, and the, the future is much brighter because we can now imagine what we might be able to achieve. Going to the moon, going to Mars, uh, there are many important benefits and we can enforce the values that we believe in that science and technology should drive us to space uh, by being superior relative to everyone else. So vote that US-China space race will promote the exploration of space, and that is good for humanity. Thanks very much. And our final uh, closing argument is going to come from Michio Kako. Michio, the floor is yours for your closing. I'm all in favor of the exploration of space. I'm all in favor of mining the asteroid belt. I'm all in favor of going on to Mars. But realize what could upset the apple cart? What could upset all our dreams of one day reaching for the stars? What could upset the entire thing is if a war breaks out, if we have a space race, billions of dollars being wasted, nations reaching for first strike capability, instability around the world. That's a horrible price to pay, and it's unnecessary because we could have a treaty and get it both ways. A win-win situation. On one hand, peace, which is the goal of everyone on the planet Earth, or should be, and second of all, the peaceful exploration of outer space for the benefit of humanity and private enterprise, and it's possible, but we have to rein in certain ambitions, that is, unbridled competition in outer space, just because we're number one. 
That's not the way we ended the arms race during the Cold War. Some of the greatest treaties ever signed in the history of humanity were done because both nations, the Soviet Union and the United States, realized that it was pointless. It was a waste of money. It endangered the health and safety of the entire planet Earth to continue an arms race of that nature. So I say, let's vote for a win-win situation. On one hand, we want economic progress. We want the exploration of outer space, but we want it done safely for our children's sake so that our children do not inherit a world that's been savaged by wars. And just remember, as the generals say, they always fight the last war. The next war will be short, nasty, and brutal. Let's hope that our children don't have to face that kind of space war because we had a Pollyanna approach to unbridled competition in outer space. All right, thank you to all four of you. And I, I complimented all four of you for the way in which you conducted this debate. I want to, in a way, compliment you and our audience for, for being here with us. Um, you know, we, I have alluded to it a little bit throughout the evening. We're living in a time when people are not able to come together with disagreement and find a way to agree to disagree and to do so respectfully and to take the toxicity out of it. Um, and this is actually a tough issue. This, is, this involves uh, foreign policy. This involves defense policy. This involves science. This involves expenditure. And the fact that we were able to do this with this kind of topic is, is just the hallmark of what Intelligence Squared has aimed for since our, our founder, Robert Rosencrantz, started this in 2006. We have now done in the neighborhood of 180, 190 debates since we've started out. Um, we, I want to, I want to let you know if you're new to Intelligence Squared, that through podcasts, through television, through public radio, we give this to the world. It's essentially a, a philanthropy. Um, it's all for free for people who are at your end of the experience out there in the audience. Um, and it's something we care about a lot at Intelligence Squared. We're a nonprofit. We depend on support from the public. We would love to have that support from you. And if you would like to support us uh, or watch any of our 180-plus debates, uh, go to our website, iq2us.org, and you can learn more about us there. Um, I have the results now. But before I get to them, I just want to share uh, one other very small piece of information, and that is that um, – the debate that you've seen now will be released to the public on November 6th, and that's on Bloomberg Television. So we're going to reveal the results now, but we're asking you to keep them quiet. Don't give away the ending. Don't give away the surprise until the public can watch them, watch this happen for themselves. All right. It is all in now. I've been given the results. Remember, it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. Here's how the voting went. On the resolution, a U.S.-China space race is good for humanity. Before the debate in polling our live audience, 47 percent agreed that the space race is good for humanity. 33 percent were in disagreement with that. 20 percent were undecided. Those are the first results. Now, again, it's going to be the difference, so listen to the difference. In the second, uh, second uh, vote, the team arguing for the motion, they started with 47%. Their second vote was 45%. They lost two percentage points. The team against the motion, their first vote was 33%. Their second vote was 51%. The team arguing against the resolution pulled up 18 percentage points. 
that clearly makes them our winner. So I want to congratulate the team arguing against the resolution that the U.S.-China space race is good for humanity for their persuasive argument. But I want to congratulate all four of our debaters for shedding light, for doing it with spirit, intelligence, decency, and civility. Thank you for tuning into this special episode of That's Debatable, presented in partnership with Bloomberg Media and sponsored by IBM. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Shay O'Mara is our director of editorial. Crystal Hawes and Damon Whittemore are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan, saying thank you. <laughs>